If you came in late, um, you will have missed the scripture reading that David read for us. It comes from Luke 22, 54 through 62, where Peter three times denies that he knows Jesus Christ. We've all experienced it. There are a few things like it. It can fill us with conviction or festoon us with shame and grief. It might even make us cry. I remember when my grandfather used to give it to us. Heavy eyebrows furled down like many crumpled carpets, lines making creases on the side of his eyes. Receiving it from him was enough to assure us that we did not want to mess with him. I remember even better when my mother used to give it to us. Again, heavy eyebrows furled down, one lifted slightly higher than the other. She would give it to us occasionally in times just like this, in places just like these, when we were sitting young, buck teeth and bony knees, full of peppermints, shifting from cheek to cheek on pews, not bleachers, that we felt became like stone as the preacher would go on and on. And when the long-awaited-for amen didn't come quickly enough and we'd start fidgeting too much, we'd get it. And we would get it good. Yes, you know the it I'm talking about. The look. The formidable look. We've all experienced the look, haven't we? It's interesting to me that in our text for today, unlike any of the other gospel writers, Luke makes special mention that at the moment of Peter's betrayal, Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter. For some reason or another, Luke wants us to focus on Jesus' look for a moment. Now, I don't know about you, but I imagine that this was one of the most piercing looks in the history of the world. If ever there was a reason for Jesus to give one of his disciples the look, it was now. And if ever there was a reason for one of Jesus' disciples to weep and cry for having received the look, it was now. The stage had been set. Only a little while earlier, while eating the last supper with his disciples in the upper room, Jesus had warned Peter that Satan desired to sift him as wheat, to ruin his faith. Peter, in response, tried to live up to his name. He tried to be a rock and confess that while everyone else might run away and abandon the Lord, he was going to be steady and strong. He was going to be resolutely dedicated to his Lord, to this one who had taken him from casting his net in the sea for fish and given him an infinitely more meaningful life fishing for men. Lord, he said, I will go with you to prison and to death. But Jesus knew Peter. He knew his strength. He knew his weaknesses, and he also knew the future. I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you know me. We don't know what Peter may have said in response to the Lord's words. Luke doesn't spell it out for us. No, what Luke does is he allows Peter's actions to tell us instead. When the soldiers come up the mountain on the Mount of Olives, where Jesus and the disciples are praying to arrest Jesus. We're told that one of the disciples pulls out his sword, like John Wayne pulls out guns, starts swinging it around, lopping off one of the soldier's ears. 
And who might this passionately protective and daring soul be? Well, Luke leaves it to the delight of our imagination. But the author of the Gospel of John tells us, it's Peter. When the soldiers get a hold of Jesus and begin leading him off down the Mount of Olives, we are told that all of the disciples run away and abandon the Lord. Except one. One brave disciple patters intrepidly behind. And who is this fearless friend? Again, it's Peter. Peter does not run. He does not hide. No, as the text tells us in verse 54, Peter creeps behind the soldiers who are holding Jesus hostage and he follows at a distance. He follows them right into the courtyard where he will be able to see Jesus and think about it, even more importantly, where Jesus will be able to see him, to see his faithfulness, to see that he indeed has named him well. He's the rock, immovable in his faithfulness to Jesus. But this is where the heat gets too hot for dear Peter. The rock begins to crumble and crack like clay in the desert sun. This is where Jesus' words to Peter and the other sleeping disciples on the Mount of Olives becomes dreadfully true for Peter. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter's spirit wants to be near his Lord, and so he is near his Lord. Nearer, though, than his flesh can handle and his character can hold. It's a struggle for Peter of titanic proportion and significance. If ever there was a reason for someone not to fail, it is now. To betray a friend is bad enough, but to betray a But it turns out that Peter has seated himself a little too close to the flames. Enough fire, enough light from the fire is thrown onto his face for a servant girl to see the familiar shape of his jaw, his darting eyes. She looks at the other sitting around the fire and says, this fellow was with him. Peter denies it. Not once, not twice, but three times. In between his second denial and the third, the text tells us that Peter sits there for a whole hour. You can be sure one of the longest hours of his life. Can you imagine him wanting to just get up, give up, and abandon the Lord like the others have, but then wanting to stay there to confess his love for Jesus and his allegiance to Christ, no matter what it meant, whether it meant arrest, degradation, or death. But when the third challenge does come, with heightened conviction and proof on the part of those looking at Peter, Peter comes to the lowest of low points in his life. He buckles and breaks. He bends like a toothpick between a farmer's frustrated teeth. His best efforts aren't good enough, and he betrays knowing the one. He denies knowing the one who knows him better than he knows himself. The one whom he himself has declared is the Christ, the son of the living God. Man, I don't know what you're talking about, he says. And this is where the text gets piercing. Just then, the rooster crowed. Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter. Lyndon Baines Johnson, former president of the United States of America, is said by his biographer Robert Carroll to have been a consummate reader of men. He could figure out what made people tick, and he would do everything he could to figure out what motivated them so that he could manipulate them and foist himself up the political ladder, which he did all the way, says Carroll, into the presidency. 
when he would teach his underlings how to read men, he would say something like this. He'd say, don't look at their history. Don't look at the great acts of what they've done in the past. Don't read what they've written. Certainly don't listen to what they're telling you. Don't pay attention to their platitudes or their cliches, but do this one thing and this one thing alone. Look into their eyes. Read their eyes. For the eyes are the pathway to the soul. I wonder, what if Lyndon Baines Johnson were there the day when Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter? What would he have seen in Jesus' eyes? What would he have read? What did Peter see? Well, friends, what if Peter didn't see what he and all of us would have expected him to see? What if he didn't get the look? What if he didn't see anger or malice or self-pity and grief or the astonishment that a friend could do such a thing? But what if instead he saw love? Yes. What if he saw love in Jesus' eyes? Love as steady as mountain and sturdy as rock. What if the only hint of grief that Peter could detect in Jesus' eyes was not a grief that Jesus had for himself, but a grief and a sorrow that he had for Peter, he who so desperately wanted to be faithful, but fell flat on his face over and over again? What would that do to a guy? What would that mean? How would that feel? Well, that might just cut a betrayer's heart in two. That might just feel like life and death all wrapped up in one, a fatal blow and a bright new birth. Jesus' enormous generosity, exposing your own immense poverty. His strength to love, your cowardice. His light and no more doubt about your own darkness. The unlovable swept up in perfection's love. That might just be a brokenness that renews. Repentance, tears that heal. What would it look like that do to you? Dear friends, don't you think it's possible and altogether characteristic of our Lord that what cut Peter's heart in half and what made Peter's heart weep with a regret more sour than an ocean of spoiled wine is that Jesus did not look at him as we would expect a friend just betrayed would look. Again, isn't it altogether likely that what absolutely earthquaked Peter's heart and twisted Peter's stomach into a pretzel of sickness and remorse and is meant to do the same thing to ours? Is that the one we have all deceived, the one whose significance we have withheld from our lips no less than three times, even though we owe our very lives to this man? He does not look at us with eyes torn wide open by surprise, nor with the glazed and benumbed look of a friend who lets you know that you just snapped the last straw, nor with the red fireballs of a jilted lover who wants to scream, I told you so, I knew you'd do this. I hate you. But instead, the one who looks at us with the unspeakably soft and sanguine half-moon eyes, the one whose greatest concern at the moment he is betrayed is to let the betrayer know that he is still loved, as fiercely as ever. Trinity Western University, I bring the good news to you today. I bring the gospel to you today because this is the good news. 
The good news is that God, in the wideness of his mercy, has chosen to look upon us in love, even though the rooster crows for us all. The good news, the greatest news, is that God looks at us from the cross that we put him on, but that he made a throne, and he says those impossible words that change absolutely everything. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is the good news, and this changes everything. Do you believe that it changes everything? Well, rest assured that it does. Forgiveness changes everything because the old sages were right. The best way to defeat an enemy is not to fight them and kill them, but to forgive them and make them your friend. Forgiveness changes everything because the ancient proverb is right. The noblest vengeance is to forgive. Forgiveness changes everything because Mark Twain was right. Forgiveness is the fragrance the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it. And forgiveness changes everything because lastly, Martin Luther King Jr. was dead right. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. And toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. Trinity Western students, faculty, staff, whoever is here, it is only the second chances that forgiveness offers that will bring peace to this world, peace to our hearts, a peace that will last. Let me conclude with a brief story. On a New Year's Day in 1929, Georgia Tech played the University of California in one of the biggest football games of the year called the Rose Bowl. During the first half, a player by the name of Roy Regals recovered a fumble for University of California, but he became confused about direction and started running to the other end zone. He scored a point or points for the other team. University of California tried to punt the ball, but it was blocked, recovered by the other team, which became the winning margin in this extremely important game. During halftime, Roy Regals and the team are sitting in the change room, men's change room, and Roy is sitting in the corner. He's got a towel over his head, his face is in his hands, and he's blubbering like a baby because he knows he's a royal screw-up, a huge failure, and he's let his whole team down. Nobody on the team says a word. It is as silence as a pin drop in there. A couple of minutes before the second half is to begin, Coach Price stands up, who hadn't said anything up until this time. He says, men, the same men who started the first half start the second. And all the men start filing out onto the field, except for Raggles, who's sitting on his bench alone, towel over his head, still whimpering. Roy, Coach Price said, didn't you hear me? I said, get out there. You're starting. Coach says, Roy, I couldn't go out there and face that crowd, face that stadium, and face my fellow team to save my life. I screwed up so royally, coach. You know I did. It's my fault. The coach goes over to him, puts his hand on his shoulder, says, look at me, son. Roy looks up in his face. He says, Roy, get up and get on back there. The game is only half over. Tech men to this day will tell you that they have never seen a man play football like Roy Regals played the second half. <laughs> Students, Trinity Western, 
if you know, like I do, that you've messed it up at the game of life, that you're more inclined to fumble than make touchdowns, run in the wrong direction and play for the wrong team, you have come to the right place this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not for self-assured superhumans who think they've got it all figured out and mastered. It's for those of us who know, as Brennan Manning once said, that more often than not, our cheese is sliding off our cracker. That's right. It's for those of us who know we've slapped the God who loves us right in the face, we've besmirched his glory, we've begrimed his magnificent creation, and we've wounded the ones he loves. One another, family, supremely his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And yet, he looks at us in love. He says, your name, look at me. Will we look at him? Or will we, what we do in our shame is look away? What we must do is in our shame be willing to face the eyes of Jesus so that our shame can be taken away. And would that we do that? Shame naturally hides. Jesus says, look at me. The game is only half over. I'm making all things new beginning with your heart. So come. If you have never come, today is the day. If you've come many times, we are invited over and over again, confess, come forward, be made new. Receive the forgiveness that changes the world. Let me pray and then we'll be dismissed. Lord God, thank you for this unbelievable message that no human being could ever have made up. You indeed are the king of glory. Lord, you are magnificent beyond comprehension, beautiful beyond imagination. Yet, even though we hurt you, even though we have rejected you, you look at us in love. Help us to see this and help it to transform us into the sort of people who live lives of such gratitude that this world itself is transformed. Give us this grace by your spirit. We know, Lord, as Peter teaches us, we don't do this in our own power, neither do we do this by our own effort. So do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Move in our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.